It's Film Festival Radio, the show where superstars and future stars happily coexist together. And now, here's your host, Janice Malone. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Film Festival Radio Show with me, Janice Malone here. And it's always a lot going on, as usual. Always a lot going on. So I'm not going to prolong this while we organize everything here. Uh, Just give you some information here that I think is kind of fun. Uh, Besides uh, films and television, you know, I'm a big sports fan. And yeah, it's still basketball season. They're trying to wrap it up there. And to further speak of the NBA, well, as most of us know, basketball is the second most popular sport in America, losing out to football. Just something about football. Can't figure it out, but it is, it's the king. It just is, including me. I, I just happen to like football more than the NBA. Nothing personal against the NBA now, but it's just football. It's just my just my boo thing. I just love football. Well, I just thought it would be fun to, uh, you know, the website Wallet Hub, WalletHub.com. They always have, they really send us really cool, fun uh, lists and listicles and things of their uh, research and surveys such as that. So with basketball fans in mind, Wallet Hub recently compiled a list of the best cities, big cities, medium size, maybe third tier, second tier, all that. The best cities in America to watch NBA basketball games. Now they did a list of total of 290 cities combined, the whole list there. And unfortunately, Las Vegas came in at number 252. Yeah, Las Vegas was ranked, according to WalletHub.com, as number 252 out of 293 cities as one of the, you know, best cities to watch NBA games. Why is that? Well, I'm just guessing it's probably because right now Vegas does not yet have a professional NBA team right now. But that's probably going to change pretty soon. I, did you guys hear what LeBron, LeBron, as I like to call him, did you guys hear what LeBron said the other day? Uh, I don't, I don't have the exact quote, but he said about would one day like to own an NBA team, and he connected the city of Las Vegas as a possible potential place where he might want to want to own a team. Wouldn't that be interesting? So how do you guys feel about that? I mean, of course, we would love an NBA team here, but would you like a team that is principally owned by LeBron? For me, it doesn't matter, just as long as we got the team. So there's something to think about. But let me quickly give you. Okay. According to WalletHub.com, these are the top 10 cities, uh, the best cities to watch NBA games. Number 10, Oklahoma City. Number nine is Houston. Number eight is Washington, D.C. Number seven, San Antonio. Six, Miami. Five, Philly. Number four, San Francisco. Number three is Salt Lake City. 
Number two is Boston. And number one is Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. So this is what they did. They they uh, compared, uh, like I said, it was 293 cities and they based it on 21 key metrics ranging from the performance level of each city's NBA team and the NCAA Division One basketball teams to ticket prices, to stadium accessibility. So they, you know, these are obviously numbers cruncher type folks. They, they're they good with numbers. Uh, numbers remind me of vegetables. I just can't handle it. So anyway, that is how they compiled the list. But you can always go to wallethub.com and just look at all of the different lists and listicles that they have compiled, ranging from sports to favorite foods in various cities. It's real interesting stuff. And I, I love reading it. It's a lot of fun to look at. So anyway, we're working on it. We're getting our own NBA team real soon. Just watch what I tell you. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll have our first guest. Stay tuned. Okay, we are back and we are ready for our first guest here on this edition of Film Festival Radio Show. Remember, if you'd like to drop us a line, the information of the email address is info at filmfestivalradio.com. Drop us a line. We get lots of emails from you listeners from around the world, and we really do appreciate it. So let's get on with our first guest here. Well, uh, our first guest is a very talented, award-winning author, and his new book is titled Queer Ducks and Other Animals. He is a two-time National Book Award finalist, as well as being a New York Times best-selling author, and his name is Elliot Schreffer. And this is what his book is about. Again, the title of it is Queer Ducks and Other Animals. So in recent years, according to uh, Elliot's book, uh, there have been studies, many of them, study after study, revealing substantial same-sex sexual behavior in animals. Now, this is a very well-researched exploration uh, book of queer behavior in the animal world, ranging from just different species, from albatrosses to clownfish to doodle bugs and just a variety of different animals and, and um, insects and such. Uh, now, this book is written... Not only, I mean, this is not one of those books that is like heavy duty, uh, just science only, where you'll get bored quickly. That is not the case. Uh, there's witty prose. Uh, there are some humorous comics, uh, thanks to artist Jules Zuckerberg, who does the illustrations for the book. There is, uh, of course, science, there's history, anthropology, sociology, and it all blends together to illustrate the diversity of sexual behavior in the animal world. So let's bring on our guest, Elliot Schreffer. And uh, we, I see we have him right now. We had some technical issues, but we did we do have him. On. We have him. Yes, we have him on board. So hi, Elliot. Let's get right to it because I know we only have a very limited window of time with you. So Elliot, how did you come across doing and exploring and, and researching this fascinating topic for a book? Surprised to come across this topic, to be honest. Um, I'm from an evolutionary biology background, and within evolution, the argument should be that animals would only affect to procreate because that's what gets their genes into the next generation, and they produce more offspring that way. So we've largely kind of been blind to the idea that animals might be participating in same-sex sexual behaviors. 
Um, but it's been a really important 20 years in science on this issue, and there's been an explosion of research into animal species all the way from fruit flies through bonobos, our closest animal relatives, that show really significant sexual behavior, 1,500 different species and counting. But my question was, why would this be part of the natural world, right? Like, why would this have evolved, and why is it not just in humans? Um, and I was looking for a book that would combine all those ideas, and it wasn't out there. So that's when I had the realization that, oh, I guess I'm writing a book. So <laughs> that's when I started Queer Ducks, uh, which is a tour of the various reasons why same-sex sexual behavior evolved in animals. So we look at bonobos, our closest relative, who have the most frequent sexual activity is between females, the bottlenose dolphins, where it's the flip. Males form these intense friendships through frequent sexual activity together. And then also looking at uh, invertebrates and birds uh, and to see how we might have had a too narrow a version of the, the ways that animals um, come together and mate. Now, uh, these animals, are they able to, when they mate, are they able to produce offspring or they're just mating for fun or, or what? Yeah, so, I mean, think about the, all the reasons that humans have sex, right? Like, sometimes it's because we are going to have an offspring, we're trying to procreate, but there's all sorts of other reasons, like you fall in love with someone and it's just exciting and it feels good, and, um, you know, we are 98.7% related to bonobos and chimpanzees, our closest animal relatives. We are part of the animal kingdom, and we're realizing now that animals also have various motivations. So when when you have physical contact with someone, and sex is the most intense physical contact you can have, um, it produces oxytocin, which is known as the bonding hormone. Uh, and that provides a feeling of closeness, which has a huge number of advantages for an animal living within a group. So like with um, bonobos, our, our ape relatives, when two females have sex together, obviously they're not going to produce baby bonobos, but they are producing a really strong alliance within the group. And it's allowed them to have these intense friendships that keep each other protected. So a male bonobo, even though they're bigger and stronger, they've learned that they can't get aggressive towards any one female because she has her female allies that are bonded through sex that are protecting each other. And that's just one example, but across the board, that is the most universal reason for why animals are doing this. They have a diversity to the reasons they have sex, just like humans do. Okay. And so I understand uh, with your book, you also have, in addition to your own research, you have uh, notable researchers uh, commenting and such. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I realize I have only one identity. I'm just one person, and I'm not going to see all the different ways that we could look at this material. So I wanted to interview various scientists to find out their take on this and what are, how would they explain this in, in incredible number of animals with same-sex sexual behavior. So there's a tour of six different scientists' point of view. Um, and also I know some of my readers will be young people. Uh, and so I wanted them to see, oh, these are other people that can do science. So I have people who have from all sexualities, from all racial backgrounds, um, just because I think young people especially have this image of, like, it's just old guys in white coats, right, that do science. <laughs> yeah. and I wanted them to have a, a impression that, oh, yeah, maybe me too. Maybe I could be a scientist, even if I don't look like that. And so, uh, now you said the book is also uh, part of the demographic is for uh, young people. So what age group are you talking, starting with? Yeah, so the majority of the readers for Queer Ducks are adults at this point, um, but I also think uh, high school students, um, upper teenagers, would find it useful because, you know, a lot of them are coming into 
an awareness of an identity that might not be, um, you know, straight, cisgender. And so a lot of the messaging they get is that you are unnatural. Or your parents who want to talk to their kids to let them know, like, I'll love you no matter what, but it's too uncomfortable to talk about directly about being gay or lesbian or bisexual. And to say, you know what, did you know that 30% of albatross nests nests are female, female is a way of broaching the conversation and showing a base level of, you know, I, I, I will accept you. It's a way of like starting this conversation through a, through a sideways way that might be more comfortable for a lot of families that can't talk about it directly. Okay. And so what do uh, some of the researchers that you've talked to, uh, do you, do they see the, this with, uh, it's not a trend because it's been going on for centuries, but I mean, do you see this expanding to more common animals that we see all the time, cows, horses, dogs, cats, or, or, or just where does that go? Yeah. One of the one of the things that comes up frequently is the majority of animals are what's called sexually monomorphic, meaning that you can't see a difference between males and females, like pigeons, mm-hmm. uh, penguins. Uh, and so when we see two animals mating, we might mentally put a tick in the male-female column, but that could actually be incorrect. And one of my favorite studies was about parrots, and there was a um, parrot breeder uh, who you can't look at a parrot and know if it's male or female. And what he would do is he would take a parrot in a cage and then put a second parrot in and see if the when they had sex if which was submissive and which was dominant and he would say okay the dominant one is male and the submissive one is female and he had a whole ledger and a year's worth of observations that he actually had to scrap because it turned out it was just the second bird introduced to the cage that took this more submissive role no matter what the sex was because the bird thought i'm entering another bird's territory this is a way of showing i'm not going to be a threat and i accept this other bird's dominance but it could be two males two females male, female, but in switched roles. Um, and so I think it's it's probably more prevalent than we know. And But because of our assumptions around, oh, sex between animals is male and female, we are subconsciously um, probably misidentifying a lot of the partners that we see. And I have a whole chapter on cattle. Cattle are fascinating. It's long been the way that cattle breeders will get a bull excited is to bring out a steer uh, so that it can see. So they've been using same-sex attraction in order to uh, to produce more um, more sperm from the cattle that they are that they are milking. Now, uh, as we all know, you are a two-time National Book Award finalist and a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, next book, have you already started on it, or do you have, plan on having an extension of the current queer ducks and other animals? Um, Yeah, I started on my next book. Mostly I write um, young adult fiction, so I'm working on a a new novel for young adults that should be out next fall. Okay. Well, this was a a big turnaround for you to go from, you know, your normal uh, fiction, and this is total fact, nonfiction, and science. So what was that like as, as as a writer for you? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I always, there's so much really amazing science going on, but it's a totally different art to communicate science, like to find the narrative around it and to tell it in a way that is a good story for, for readers. Um, and so I think because I came across this topic and then decided to write on it, it's now awakened in me this love for nonfiction and, and writing science stories. So I think that's not going away any anytime soon. Um, and, you know, narrative is narrative and story is story. And you can take your um, take it from facts and then work from there to find the shape of them, or you can create it full cloth like in fiction. Um, but it uses a lot of the t- similar skill sets. And finally, uh, has there been 
any talk or is it too early uh, about maybe possibly turning queer ducks and other animals into like a documentary, maybe for Nat Geo or, or some network like that or what? I would love that. So <laughs> listening, I was like, oh yeah, I was about to make a documentary about something like, just reach out to me. Um, I think it would be really, really interesting. Um, and we're, the book just came out uh, a couple days ago, so we're still in the very early stages, but I'm certainly, I'm certainly game for that. Others certainly be very knowledgeable, very informative, and different. Very different. So, anyway, the book again is Queer Ducks and Other Animals by Elliot Schrafer, number one New York Times bestselling author, and probably has another one with this current book is going to make the list as well. So, congratulations on the release of this book. Just came out. I still smell the ink is so new. It just came out. <laughs> Well, thank you. That's that's very kind. It's really been fun talking to you. Yeah, I've, I've learned a lot here. I'm just like, wow, this makes my coffee taste even more interesting here. So thank you for all the hard work that you did in putting this book together. Thank you very much. And yeah, maybe you'll uh, think twice next time you see a couple of dogs. In the <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Most definitely. Like, oh, that's kind of interesting. So anyway, we will hopefully talk to you on your next project and have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much. I look forward to that. Okay, then. Bye-bye. Okay, we are ready for our next guest here. How many of you out there are fans, avid viewers of uh, the hit drama series All Rise? Remember? Yeah, All Rise. You know, it was on CBS. And then something spooky happened. We don't know what as it goes in television. But now the good news is that All Rise is on the OWN network. Yeah, it is on the OWN network. It was uh, with CBS for two seasons. It's an Image, image Award nominated courtroom drama. So it is now on the Oprah Winfrey Network as of this past Tuesday, June 7th. And not only is it back, it is back with a big bang because there will be 20 episodes for the third season of the now own yeah it's on own all rise and so if you haven't seen it please do especially if you like courtroom uh legal dramas and such as that i'll give you the quick synopsis it follows uh the lives i should say chaotic lives of judges and prosecutors public defenders all of that all of those very hardworking people who pursue justice for the people of Los Angeles in this particular show. And they do all of this in the midst of a very flawed legal system. Oh, don't you just hate when the legal system is flawed? I don't know of any city that doesn't have, I mean, this, you know, humans, wherever we are, there's flaws. But anyway, the show specifically uh, follows uh, the character Judge Lola Carmichael, who is portrayed by Simone Missick. And it's a very good show. I, I really have enjoyed it when it was two seasons on um, CBS. So now that it's on OWN, 20 episodes, they got 19 more to go. So you should tune in. And so that brings me to our guest. He is one of the principal cast uh, members of All Rise. It's actor J. Alex Brinson, and he stars as Luke Watkins, the bailiff who has these big aspirations, legal aspirations. And he just one day 
we can hope that his character will become a lawyer before the show ends uh, permanently there. So anyway, uh, it's a really good show. Again, I can't emphasize that enough. And so we had the opportunity to talk to uh, Jay earlier this week. As I said, the new season started uh, last Tuesday. So we got the opportunity to talk to him earlier that morning last Tuesday. So let's bring... J. Alex Brinson on board. Again, he stars its uh, Luke Watkins on the hit drama series All Rise. Let's do it right now. Janice, what's going on? Uh, what's going on? Good morning in uh, Las Vegas. Yes, as always, Las Vegas is lively. <laughs> as always. Las Vegas is alive. <laughs> it is so alive, Jay. And speaking of liveliness, my show, All Rise, returns tomorrow night on the Oprah Winfrey Network. Oh, my God. Congratulations to you guys. Woo-woo-woo. <laughs> Oprah saved us. We are so thankful that we are back. This is so exciting. Oh. We love you, Oprah. <laughs> God, yes. Who doesn't love? I mean, if you don't love Oprah, I don't know if I even trust you. Come on. <laughs> well... She's... Listen, Oprah is just, she is so smart, so articulate, the biggest part, and uh, just so prolific in what she's done and built over the years. Well, now, again, it, uh, the return of All Rise tomorrow night, uh, check your listings in your city, uh, but it's 20 episodes, so you guys are back with a blockbuster request of, of episodes, so can you give us a little, we, you know? We... Yeah. Yeah, you want a little, a little, uh, a little sneak peek? Little, little some, some, yeah, yeah. So we are back with the blast. You know, the beautiful thing about our show is the diverse stories that we can tell from the diverse perspectives. So it's kind of like with twenty, we can we can really get in there and crack open um, what our country looks like, mm -hmm. you know, and we can talk. Um, we can share different perspectives culturally, um, everything from uh, Native American storylines and, you know, to celebrity, you know, Instagrammers to hockey players. You know, we can really crack open and, and look at life through different people's eyes in this country, you know? So needed. So do you know, uh, out of these 20 episodes, are there any that will specifically have um, a storyline that was taken directly from a, a headline? Because there's been so much chaos and craziness going on in our headlines every single day. So do, are there any shows in specific yeah. that, or what? So I no spoilers. Oh. So I can't give you any spoilers. Um, I can't give you any spoil <laughs> big spoilers, but yes. And and the, and just so you know, um, all the, the you know the consultants on the show, the legal consultants, pull the cases from real cases. Oh wow! So okay. the the cases that that we're doing are based on uh, real cases. Yeah. So your character is Luke Watkins, a bailiff, but Luke has big aspirations. Can you give us a little bit about what Luke is going to be doing? Yeah, you know, Luke, 
Luke, this is an exciting season for Luke because, you know, he's finally figuring out as he gets older what he likes, what he doesn't like, what motivates him, what doesn't motivate him. And he's beginning to change and to grow and kind of go after some of the things that he wants in life. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's exciting to see him attack, you know, life like that, you know, from his work and the cases and like what he believes in in regards to the system and how it should work. But then also his personal life, you know, like, hey, what is what is it that I want from a partner? What is it that I want from, you know, when I go home at night, you know, what what is it? What is what do I want that to look like? outside of work. So it's an exciting time frame. Well, I was just looking over uh, my notes here about just a little bit because you have such an extensive successful career as an actor. And I was just looking at um, some of oh, the... My oh, my goodness. You're... Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, well, you're, you're so deserving. But, you know, it, parts of Luke's character kind of parallels a little bit of your early life. You you're, come from a single mom. You um, had dyslexic um, symptoms, and your, but your mom overrode all of that to make sure you got a quality top education. And look at you now. You're all over the world on television and films. It's just amazing, an amazing story. <laughs> Yeah. You, you know what, man? I feel like we all love a story of overcoming challenges. And uh, I have, my life has not been short of a challenge. <laughs> Give me another one, I'll take it. <laughs> I have so many problems, you know. But it, it, it's all about um, resilience and developing resilience. And I'm very appreciative to my mom for, you know, what she's done, how hard she's worked. And for what she instilled in me subconsciously about work ethic and about, um, you know, having a, having a driving why behind what you're doing. Because really, you know, it's like I've never questioned giving up, really, truly. And I, I have to attest that to, to what I learned as a young boy. You know, I just, I, don't, I just don't know what that means to give up. I just don't know what it means. Well, thank God that we were, we are, you know, your viewers and fans, just thank God that you did not give up. We would have been denied all of the great acting talents that you have here. Well, we have, we have about three minutes left. Can you quickly tell me about you and your lovely wife have uh, founded the GB Group Creative? What is that organization all about? Mm, so we started by offering educational products to young artists, um, and and it's kind of evolved into how can we inspire the next generation of artists to find their individuality and then to share it with the world. So that's the mission of our organization. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of what we're after by okay. offering different educational products. Um, we've made a couple of publications. We kind of put together some uh, educational conferences. Um, anything and everything to, 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 to drive the, the mission forward. Okay. And so uh, is this based in New York, the company, or where? Um, we are based in uh, Vancouver, B.C. We're, we have two offices, Vancouver and Los Angeles. Oh, okay, okay. And so, how can people contact your uh, GB group, uh, group creative? 
Hey, man. Uh, check us out on the web. You can go to my website and kind of get links to all that stuff. jalexbrinson.com. Okay. And then, hold on here. We are so close to Tuesday, 7, 8 o'clock Central, um, for the premiere of Season 3, All Rising Oh. Okay, we've got to... In closing this out, will anybody, will you, will any of the cast members, will anybody be doing any live tweeting or Facebooking or, or Instagramming or any of that? You know, we're, we're all going to be there. We're going to be there. We're all going to be there. Okay, so what do we just go to? We've got to be there. You got to. <laughs> so what do we go to All at All Rise? Is that it? To find it? At, um, you know what? I don't exactly know the hashtag. But I'm sure I can figure it out and get that information to you in a second. Okay, it's no problem. Uh, fans will find you, believe me. We know how to find you. If we want at, to. At All Rise Own. At All Rise Own is the, is the Twitter handle. At All Rise Own. Okay. See you there at the computer and the television set tomorrow night, Jay. See you guys there tomorrow night. Yes. yes. All rise. <laughs> all rise yes. for All Rise. Thank Absolutely. you, Jackie. Okay. You all are rise. so welcome. Thank right. you. Okay. Bye bye. Right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to another edition of Film Festival Radio with your host, Janice Malone. Be sure to download this and other episodes at filmfestivalradio.com. Okay, we are back with more of Film Festival Radio Show. So how many of you are old enough, I'm showing my age here, but how many of you remember the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau? I believe it was ABC that it used to come on when I was growing up. I just loved watching uh, the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. He was just, you know, this this really smart and cool oceanographer, scientist, marine biologist. He was just, oh my goodness. I think they used to come on Friday nights, I believe, whenever uh, they showed them. And I was just fascinated by uh, Mr. Cousteau's work. And so now that brings me to our next guest. I am so honored to be able to talk to our next guest and his wife. And that is Philippe Cousteau and his beautiful wife, Ashlyn Cousteau. Now, Philippe is the third generation of the legendary Cousteau family. He is the grandson of the famous, world famous explorer, oceanographer, Jacques Cousteau. So in honor of World Ocean Day, uh, June 8th, this husband and wife duo, they are going to come on and talk with us uh, about the insights into the health of our oceans and rivers and streams. And we'll be discussing some steps that all of us can take every day, not just on World Ocean Day, just some steps that we can all work towards helping our oceans to get cleaner, our whole planet just to get cleaner. And people can also visit their website, earthecho.org. And that's earthecho.org. 
O-R-G. And there you will find a wealth of information, all kinds of resources, uh, how you, me, and all of us can make a positive impact to help clean and clean up our oceans for our marine life, our uh, the, the, the whales, the dolphins, all of the beautiful fish and uh, wildlife. Uh, I should say ocean wildlife, because it is wildlife. It's just under the water. Well, I'll tell you quickly that Ashlyn and Felipe, um, Felipe, I should say, Cousteau, they are uh, environmental advocates and they are filmmakers. And they obviously have a very mutual, deep passion about exploration. And together they have co-hosted three seasons of their award-winning uh, travel channel series called Caribbean Pirate Treasure. Have you guys seen that show? Uh, they've also done Discovery Channel's Nuclear Sharks. And recently they co-authored their first book together, Oceans for Dummies. I got to get that one. I've, I've seen their other shows. But um, as I said, Philippe is a third generation uh, of the legendary Cousteau family. And Ashlyn is a beautiful red carpet regular as a correspondent for Entertainment Tonight, as well as being a reporter and anchor for the E! News television network for more than a decade. So together, they are a powerhouse couple there in not only Hollywood, but in science and marine biology work throughout the world. So let's bring on Ashlyn. And Felipe, uh, I keep saying Felipe is Philippe, it's French, Philippe Cousteau, as we talk to them more about their work as uh, ocean environmentalist and World Earth Day and just a lot more, as much as we can get into our 10, 12 minutes of allotment of time with them. So let's bring them on right now. Candice, you now have Felipe and Ashlyn. Great. Well, hello. How hey, are you? Hi there to the both of you. This is such That's a... my mother's name, so I love that name. Oh, gosh, isn't that sweet? I feel extra special right now. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, both of you are not only are you very attractive people, uh, you're very smart and talented. Well, let's face it, excellent. Well, <laughs> definitely, <laughs> most definitely. So, and you, and you both are ocean advocates and explorers. Uh, so you're here to talk about June 8th being World Ocean Day. Now, what exactly is World Ocean Day? And how can we, if we are land lovers, how can we celebrate uh, World Ocean Day? Well, you know, World Ocean Day was established because the poor ocean usually gets the backseat, uh, which is so sad when it comes to our planet because 70% of our world is covered by the ocean. And if anybody likes to drink water, eat food, or breathe air, they need to thank the ocean. Um, but many times, like I said, the ocean gets left out of the conversation or really just completely forgotten about. So World Ocean Day is just a celebration of, of everything amazing that the ocean does for us and a reminder of how we're all connected to it. Even if we live in the middle of a country, in the middle of the desert, the ocean affects us every moment. And the ocean is so beautiful. I love looking at video of huge, scary waves, but it's just so beautiful just to look at. But it's so true. Well, it's peaceful. We're all connected to the ocean. We have salt. We all have salt in our veins. So, um, you know, the, the ocean is where we came from, and the ocean, as Ashley said, is, is the life support system of this planet. So it all matters to all of us. Now, Philippe, I understand that you are from the 
world-famous Cousteau family. I grew up watching Jacques Cousteau. Who didn't grow up watching him if we were old enough? Now, are you the grandson or great-grandson? Grandson. Uh, the grandson. Oh, my goodness. It, it was just such a thrill in our house to just see those Jacques Cousteau specials and such. And now, you know, the two of you are carrying on the, the legacy and the work. And uh, just, just so wonderful to see both of you continuing on like this. So. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I, I, I'd like to remind people that, you know, my grandfather invented scuba diving in the 1940s. And it's really only been since then. So, you know, 70, 75 plus years since we have been exploring the ocean beneath the surface, right? We've crisscrossed the waves for millennia, but exploring beneath the surface is relatively new for humanity. And in that time, we've, we've learned so much about the ocean, not only how important it is, but, you know, how much it's, you know, it's in trouble from all of our activities, from overfishing, pollution, to, you know, things like climate change that, you know, fundamentally is an ocean problem. And it's also crazy to think, too, that in, you know, really just those, like, 70, 75 years ago, um, Jacques also invented like underwater cameras mm -hmm. and, and then the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau was, was truly took people on an adventure and showed, showed humanity what a dolphin swimming around looked like, coral what a shark looked like, you know, what a coral reef sounded like. Yeah. And, and I think it's, we're also used to kind of knowing everything today and, and, you know, our cell phones have more power than the first computer that put like a man on the moon. So we're so used to just knowing everything, but but truly back then it was such a discovery. And also what's exciting is we don't know, we still don't know much, we still don't know everything about our ocean. So it is still a state, it's still a place of wonder and exploration and and there's still creatures that, that we've never seen and, and and hopefully we will see them at some point. I have to throw this in really fast because it's one of my favorite videos to watch. Uh, you know, the, the, you guys maybe probably have been there where these two, two oceans do not blend together. Is, is it an ocean and a sea? And they it's like this perfect divide where the salt water doesn't mix with the regular water. I think I probably am explaining it wrong. <laughs> Tell us about that. <laughs> Well, what's fun to remember, which I think is so fascinating, is, you know, we all grew up talking about the ocean, the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Southern, you know, the Indian Ocean, but truly it's all one connected ecosystem, right? So we really only have one ocean on Earth, but where those currents and different salinities meet and, and even different colors of water meet, yes. it, it, is, it can be quite different, and seeing that, like, line is so fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's, there's so much that we still have to learn, and that's a phenomenon that we see in lots of different places around the world. And I've never been diving off Dubai, but I have been diving in, in the Red Sea uh, many, many times nearby, and and uh, it's and the Indian Ocean, of course, with Ashland has too. And there's so much still left to explore and understand. I think that's that's part of the, the mystery and the magic that we have to remember about the ocean as well. That we haven't figured everything out, and and the ocean's in trouble. It is also resilient amazing place that, that when we work with the ocean, when we support the ocean, um, the ocean supports us and, and we can build a thriving, hopeful future together. Now, what exactly is EarthEcho.org? So that, you know, talking about hope, there's a lot of bad news on the headlines, but one of the things that we really look forward to every day is our work with Earth Echo. So 15, 16 years ago, I founded an organization that's become a leading global environmental education group that work with young people around the world, 
leadership resources, curriculum, tool, um, because we know that, that there's a new generation out there that is fired up, cares about the ocean, cares about these issues, and is, um, is leading us towards a thriving, hopeful future. And, and Earthfact is all about building that community and supporting that movement to restore and protect the ocean. That's what we do every day, and, and it's the, the best part of our, of our work. Now, I can only imagine in this, well, we've got five whole minutes here, but I can only imagine the the beauty and the fascinating creatures that you both have seen on your uh, underwater dives so far. What's been the most memorable creature or artifact or what, what have you seen underwater that just sticks with your mind? I think for, for me, a location that I just thought was so incredible was we were able to go diving in uh, Bikini Atoll, which is where the United States did all of our nuclear testing during the Cold War. We actually set off 20, 30 nuclear bombs on these, of course, a beautiful, pristine island chain. Uh, and, and, and the one, the largest blast, Casa Bravo, it actually vaporized things for for almost seven miles out, it killed everything. Oh, and we went back almost 60 years to the day. And I, we didn't know what to expect. And when we went into the water, we were surrounded by about 60 or 70 gray reef sharks. Oh, uh, oh. There, were, there were fish that were the size of German shepherd. There were giant clams that were a couple feet across. The coral was beautiful. The color was beautiful. And it just proved to, to me personally I always knew that nature could, you know, could rebound and, and, and regenerate itself, but it, it wasn't until I actually dove there that I saw it with my own eyes. And, and it was still, to this day, it was one of those moments where it changed, it changed my life. Also, I came face-to-face uh, in, um, in Mexico with a gigantic female, uh, great white shark, and she swam right up to me, looked me in the eye, at that point, I realized, oh, sharks have pupils. That's interesting. And and she scanned me, and we had this moment. And that was also a, a, something that changed my life forever. And I, I always wanted to, to save sharks after after that moment. She was just a beautiful underwater, like a gigantic submarine. But underwater, she looked like a ballerina. Yeah, I would say I, I agree that the experience in um, Bikini and the Marshall Islands filming nuclear sharks for Discovery, where, you know, as Ashley said, we did all that nuclear bomb testing. But then, because of the radiation, people left. And we left that place alone for 60-plus years. And so it essentially became a reserve. And in that time, nature was able to bounce back. And so we've seen that in Indonesia. We've seen it in Mexico. We've seen it all over the world where, hey, if we give the ocean a break, it has this amazing ability to renew and restore itself. And so one of the important tools in our arsenal is, um, and what we're actually working on, you know, we're leading the global youth um, uh, campaign with Earth Echo on, on what's called 30 by 30, which is to protect 30% of the ocean by 2030. Because we know that the ocean is our biggest ally fighting climate and climate crisis. And if we set critical parts of the ocean aside and just let them restore and recover, that they will. And it's a, um, it's a, it's a powerful tool in our arsenal and one that we have to implement. And young people are leading the way. You know, you guys, I'm sure remember this. Uh, I forgot what part of Italy. It was during the pandemic when it kind of first started. And the, the ocean life just started coming back. And, and the water just, yeah. when the tourists stopped coming, it just automatically, all the ocean life mm-hmm. just returned. It was interesting. Yeah. 
Dennis. Exactly. We saw it at this game bay off Miami where you saw, you know, the water clear up, you know, within a few months and you saw turtles and you saw sawfish and, you uh-huh. know, things coming right to shore and you saw the manatees thriving. And so, um, yeah, it's just it's all those reminders that when we work with nature and give it a break, um, it could be a, it, it can renew itself and be a powerful, again, really powerful. Island. We need healthy ocean ecosystems like seagrass and kelp and mangroves that, you know, sequester far more carbon than terrestrial forests. We need, you know, healthy fisheries to be able to continue to feed people, continue to have livelihoods and fishermen around the world. And so, you know, we need these systems intact in order to have hope for a future. And, um, and again, the good news is that even the ones that are, that are degraded when we, when we come together and, and help restore them, they, they can bounce back. Yeah, and, and we don't want people to think that we have to shut down the world and shut down the economy yeah. to make nature thrive. We don't need to do that. It was just it was a nice reminder to see how connected and how close we were to nature. But, but what we do need to do is we just need to work in tandem with nature and again protect these biological hotspots, these very special places and in, in the world. And then you know, and then we can enjoy the the, the fruits of those because uh, fish don't know boundaries, so they'll swim wherever they want. So even if we close off some of these very specific areas and make them marine protected reserves. The fish will just, you know, the, the, the biodiversity will just swim and, and will actually, if we fish less, we'll be able to catch more fish, if that makes sense. So we just need to be smarter with how we work with nature. I totally agree. It, it seems like the oceans are kind of like the human body, as our doctors have told us. In many cases, our bodies will know what to do. They will heal itself if you put the right liquids and foods within and it seems like the ocean is the same way you've just given time let it alone and it knows what to do well, you know, even in a place like vegas even in the desert you know <laughs> look at what's happening in lake Mead, right yeah. the droughts that we're seeing and the issues around the Hoover dam etc um those are all related those are all ocean issues at the end of the day the ocean drives our climate so yeah. in a place like las vegas the ocean matters and what we do in terms of our consumption of you know, the products and chemicals and energy and all of that has an impact on, on the ocean and that's an impact on us no matter where we are. And so it's just really important to remember that um, even in the middle of the desert, uh, you know, the ocean matters to us. And we are in the middle of the desert. But anyway, it's still beautiful. Uh, I would love to meet both of you. If you ever come this way, please let us know. Absolutely. I would definitely love to Absolutely. meet you. We will do that 100%. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Philippe and Ashlyn, and for all the work that you're doing. And we will recognize World Ocean Day and celebrate it. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Okay. Okay. Take care then. Bye-bye. All right. Bye, darling. Okay. Thank you for listening to another edition of Film Festival Radio with your host, Janice Malone. Be sure to download this and other episodes at filmfestivalradio.com.
Okay, everybody, it is time for one of my favorite segments for Film Festival Radio Show, and that is it's auditions. It's time for auditions, and just uh, based upon the mail that we receive from you listeners out there, I think this is one of your favorite segments as well. So let's jump right in here. Uh, audition number one. One of my favorite television shows, TLC's hit show, Dr. Pimple Popper with Dr. Sandra Lee. Don't you just love Dr. Lee? She is just, oh, the, the work that she does to help people all over the world. It's just amazing. But her show, the good news is this, they are looking for people. If So if you or if you know someone who needs help with severe skin conditions, uh, those pesky lipomas or cyst, if it's a cystic, cystic acne or some kind of rare skin condition, need help, the show is offering help if you are selected. And if you are selected, you will be flown out to Dr. Lee's office there in California, and you will receive totally free treatment for your skin condition. Plus, you'll get to be on national television to share your story. I think that's just a good deal if you are selected. So listen, if you are interested, uh, you need to email your name, your telephone number, at least three to four pictures of the skin condition problem that you're having. And you need to send it from multiple angles, the front, the back, side, left, right, etc. And then just share a brief story on how this skin condition condition even started, what happened to, to get this like this. And you need to email that information to this email address, popper, and that's P like paper, O-P-P-E-R, at aberrant creative.com. Now, aberrantcreative.com is spelled a little bit tricky. So it's spelled A, B as in boy, E, R, R, A, N, T, C, R, R, E, A, T, I, V, E.com. So it's two R's and two R's. So I'll spell it again. It's popper at aberrant creative.com. A, B as in boy, E, R, R, A, N, T, C, R, R, E, A, T, I, V, E.com. Send that information. Again, if you don't have time to write it down, you can always email me in, in uh, what's our email? Info at filmfestivalradio.com. Wow. I hope somebody gets selected from Vegas. Uh, oh, that will make my whole year. Okay. Uh, audition number two. Who are fans of NBC's hit show, The Voice? Everybody, okay? Well, guess what? The Voice is looking for people who can sing. And guess what else? You don't have to wait in those lines that extend from Vegas all the way up to Canada. You can do the audition. You can do it right in your home because they're doing virtual open auditions and they're taking videos next week, June 21 and June 22. Okay, write those dates down, June 21st and June 22nd. The Voice is now casting singers from all over the country for future upcoming seasons. And you know what? This is going to be season 21. Yes, the show started in uh, 2011. Uh, our show started in 2007. And we have been interviewing contestants and winners from The Voice 
since 2011 when they first started. So if you think that you have what it takes, do you have the kind of voice that can cause the celebrity judges, you know who they are, Coach Kelly Clarkson, Ariana Grande, John Legend, and Coach Blake Shelton. Do you have the kind of voice that will cause these four superstar judges to turn their chairs during the blind auditions? Well, if you've got that kind of voice, this is what you need to do. And you need to do it June 21st or June 22nd. Now, you must be a citizen of America or a legal resident of the United States. And what you need to do is go to this website, www.nbcthevoice.com. All of the information, instructions, it's all right there. But again, make sure you do so on June 21st and June 22nd to uh, email your uh, your video, your virtual uh, tryout there. Okay, nbcthevoice.com. Dot com is where you can find all of the information. And so grab your uh, remote, change the channel to a different network because audition number three, American Idol. Oh, yes, the producers on American Idol, they are also looking for singers. They're looking for their next superstar. Oh my God, do you have what it takes to be the next Carrie Underwood or Jennifer Hudson or... It, oh, they've had so many. So this is what you need to do for them. You must be at least 15 years old by September 15th. They're looking for people between the ages of 15 and 27. Now they don't have a date on here, a cutoff date. So you've got a little bit of time. So if you, hey, if you think you've got what it takes, same similar procedure, virtual auditions, uh, you know, make the audition at your home or a nightclub or at the church or wherever. The producers want to hear from you as well on American Idol. And they're looking for you. You've got to be, again, between the ages of 15 and 27. And this is going to also be American Idol's season 21. Isn't that ironic? And that's pretty cool. But anyway, this is where you need to go for American Idol. There's a website for them as well. Go to abc.com forward slash shows with an S forward slash American dash idol forward slash auditions with an S. Once again, abc.com forward slash shows forward slash American dash idol forward slash auditions. It's all right there. Instructions on what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. It's all right there on that website. And I am going to cross my fingers, my eyes, and my toes that you will make it through the first round because that's the most important, of course. Got it? Got it. Okay. That's going to conclude uh, this edition of Film Festival Radio Show. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. Thank you to all of our guests, as always. Support our guests with their projects, their books and films and television shows and such. And we'll just keep it coming. So I'll see you guys next Saturday on another edition of Film Festival Radio Show. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>